The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Well, you can turn your Bibles to Romans 7, and uh, we'll be in verses 1 through 6 uh, this morning. Uh, Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Before we read the text, I believe very strongly that all of Scripture uh, is important to the Christian life. So so God says to us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. So so that the man of God could be perfect and, and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So so, so you need your whole Bible if you're going to live a, a godly Christian life. Thank you so much. And that's the right one. All right, so, so, so we need our Bibles if we're going to be mature, godly Christians. But, you know, probably most of us, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe if most is the right word, but a lot of us, you know, we, we know that we need to read our Bible, and so we dive into it, we begin reading through some sort of of a Bible reading program, and um, maybe you get bogged down, though, pretty quickly when you get to the law of Moses. It's heavy stuff, isn't it? It's complicated. And, and when you get to Exodus, you're reading Exodus through Deuteronomy, you can tell that all this law stuff is really important, all right, because it dominates the Pentateuch. And, and really, that the law, it controls the narrative of almost the entire Old Testament, And so it's clearly important, but you're reading through it, and you can't understand what's going on. And you're not quite sure what it means for you or how to apply it. You're wondering, what in the world does all of this have to do with me? Like, what does it matter to me how many holes they make in the tents for the tabernacle? Or how many cubits this thing is, and how many cubits that thing is, and spans of this and spans of that? And so you know that we don't offer sacrifices anymore, and you know that we don't go to the temple, so you're like, I don't think I'm required to obey all this stuff. But, but the Ten Commandments, they certainly seem really important, and so do some other things in the law. So how do you know which commands to obey and which you don't have to obey anymore? And um, why does the Christian life look so different then life for the Old Testament Israelites looked. You know, if God hasn't changed, if we're worshiping the same God, then, then why do we worship in different ways than they worshiped? Why, why do we follow different life routines? Why do we eat different food, wear different clothes, and live such different lives if we're serving the same God that Israel did? Well, those are really important, big questions as you think about your Bible as a whole. And the Roman Christians would have been asking some of those same exact questions by the time they ended Romans chapter 6. And so Paul is going to answer some of those questions in today's passage, Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. God says to us, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, 
If while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now this is a really important passage regarding the transition from from the age of law to the age of grace. And so it tells us why it is that we are no longer bound by the law of Moses. And it also uh, gives us the story of how God has brought New Testament Christians out of the law and into a much better, greater reality in the age of grace. But Paul begins in verses 1 through 3 by describing the law's dominion. And so he begins here with the law's dominion in verses 1 through 3. Now, now before we go on to, to talk about the dominion of the law, speaking of the law of Moses, it's important we take a little bit of time to, to set this passage in context. So, so in particular, you know, why, why is Paul talking about the law? I mean, we're a bunch of Gentiles. None of us probably are naturally all that concerned about the law. Well, well the reason that Paul is talking about the law of Moses is because of a, a, a key statement that he made in chapter 6, verse 14. So there he said, Sin shall not be master over you. Why? For you are not under law, but under grace. So, so God says that we are not under law, which in context it is very clearly the law of Moses. All right, And that's going to be an important thought to keep in mind as we go forward. Instead, we are under the age of grace. Now, now remember, again, the contrast. But between law and grace, there in verse 14, is not a contrast between rules and no rules. All right? That's not the point. No, rather, that the contrast there is between two ages. The age of the law of Moses, which went from, from Mount Sinai till the death and resurrection of Christ, and the age of grace, which follows Christ's resurrection. So, so what Paul says in chapter 6, verse 14, is that we are living in a new age. Now, now we've been in that age now for almost 2,000 years, but you know, Paul's writing around uh, 58 B.C., so this is a new thing at that time. And he's telling the, the Romans that we, are not, we, are, we have just gone through a massive transition. We live in the age of grace. And we live in a new age where the resurrection power of Jesus enables us to pursue genuine godliness. Sin will not be master over us. Now that's great. But, but again, I mean, Paul's Jewish readers are people who, who had grown up under the law. They are in the middle of a massive transition in God's purpose. And they've got a lot of questions. And so today's passage focuses on this transition from law to grace. And it explains why we are not under the law and why the age of grace is much better. So this passage 
it is a really important passage for using and applying your Old Testament well. Now, you want to know when you read through the law and read through all these other things in the Old Testament, what do I do with it? What do I not do with it? This passage is very important. And it also offers strong encouragement that Jesus has given us something far better. And so it begins with a simple assertion, and that is that a covenant is binding until death. So, so Paul assumes that, that both his Jewish and Gentile readers would understand the assertion he makes in chapter 7, verse 1, where he says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? Now, now a key thought for moving forward in this passage is that the verb that's translated there as has jurisdiction it is the same verb that he uses throughout chapter 6 to talk about the reign of sin. So he talks about sin being a master or a lord over us, and now he uses the same language to talk about the law as, as acting as a lord or a master over sinners. And, and that idea of, of he takes a lot of the same concepts that he talked about in chapter 6 about the reign of sin, and he's going to talk about them in similar terms about the reign of law in this passage. So, so he says here that the law oppressed God's people the same way in a similar way to how sin oppresses the unbeliever. And that's not surprising if you've been paying attention to the book of Romans because Paul has, made, has already made it clear that the law could not save. No one will be in heaven because they obeyed the Mosaic law. So instead, we've seen that all that the law of Moses could do was bring to people the knowledge of sin and condemn them to judgment. And verse 1 here adds that, that all who are under the law are bound by that law until death. It's a covenant. And you can't just walk away from a covenant. And by the way, that, 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 the idea that the law has jurisdiction applies to both Jews and Gentiles. So, so it is true that, that God gave Israel the law at Mount Sinai. But, but for roughly 1,400 years, the only way anyone in the world could approach God was through the means and, and the requirements of the Old Testament law. And, and so all the Jew, all, all Jews and Gentiles for, for 1,400 years were under this law. And, and as well, verses 4 and 5 are going to assume that in some sense, every unbeliever in every age is bound by the law. Now, now, that's not meaning that you know, an unbeliever today is bound to the law of Moses. It's talking there more about God's general righteous standard, His, his moral code that, that stands over every generation and is timeless. So God's law in the general sense stands over all unbelievers. And it leaves them hopelessly condemned before God. And, and that's a problem. Because there's no escaping it. It has jurisdiction over them. I mean, you are born into this world standing under the law of God. Standing under His requirements. And as, as, the, as, the, as, as saying to you, this is what is required of you in order to earn a relationship with God. And that's a problem. Because Paul follows with an illustration. And the illustration teaches... Oops. The illustration teaches that death alone frees us from one covenant so that we can make another. 
So, so look again. Um, well, well I'm gonna, I'll read them in a moment here. So, so these verses, verses 2 and 3, uh, use an illustration here about marriage. And they draw on, on common teaching, both in the Old Testament and in, in the teachings of Jesus about the nature of the marriage covenant. And so specifically, Paul tells us in verse 2, that a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. So, so what's he saying there? He's saying that when you make the marriage covenant, that that covenant is binding until death. What do we say in our marriage vows? We say, till death do us part. And so the point there is to say that the marriage covenant is a lifelong covenant that, that normally speaking can only be broken by death. And so Jesus, of course, affirmed this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, when he said, So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So, so marriage is a lifelong covenant, which again can normally only be annulled by death. And then verse 3 illustrates just how significant death is regarding this covenant by, by contrasting the, 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 by, by contrasting how, how life and death affect this marriage covenant. So, so, so he goes on there. Let's read verse 3. He says, So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So, so Jesus here, uh, so, so, so Paul here is making an important contrast. You know, that death radically changes the equation. If a married man marries another woman, it's adultery. But if his wife dies and he remarries, it's perfectly fine. And Jesus, again, affirmed this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, when he said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So, so he does make one exception there. But he says as a general rule that to divorce and remarry is to break the seventh commandment that thou shalt not commit adultery. It is a big deal in the mind of God to divorce and remarry. But, verse 3 affirms, that the death of the woman's husband radically changes the equation, right? Because if her husband dies, she is free from her marriage covenant, and she is free to remarry. So uh, I didn't get this verse into the slides, but 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39 says, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord, meaning there to a fellow believer. So, So once... The, the, so once the spouse dies, there is nothing wrong in the mind of God with remarriage. But up to that point, it is a big deal. Now, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole of divorce and remarriage because it is a massive and complicated rabbit hole. And, um, and it's also not the primary concern of our passage, all right? It's just an illustration here, just an analogy uh, for the purpose of making a point. And, and if you... If you if you weren't here, you want to think more about this. I did a sermon back in July of 2021 where we walked through a lot of the complicated, complex issues surrounding divorce and remarriage. So 
You can look it up on Sermon Audio if you want to think about that more, and, and you're well, welcome, and I'd encourage you to listen to that. But for, day, for today, I simply want to note you know, that, that we live in a culture of no-fault divorce. Where, where marriage exists, we assume that marriage exists for my happiness. And so if I'm not happy in my marriage, well, I just get a divorce and start over. Find someone that I am happy with. But, but folks, we need to understand that that is a very unbiblical way of looking at the covenant of marriage. Jesus said that when you get married, God binds you together in a lifelong covenant. It is a covenant relationship. And he says that we should not voluntarily break what God has made. And so it is very important. I think it's worth emphasizing often that the marriage covenant is, is, is a sacred issue that we need to see through God's eyes, not the world's. But with that said, Paul's ultimate point here is relatively simple. Generally speaking, only death ends covenant obligations. And so thinking then of that, or transitioning to the idea of the law of Moses, God, once God instituted the law, the only way that we could be freed from that covenant was to die. Now that's a problem, right? Because It's a problem for sinners because we can't keep the law. We, we cannot earn salvation through the law. And, and, so, and, and so how can we be freed from the law and how can we possibly be saved? How can we escape the dominion of the law? Well, Paul answers in verse 4 where he describes the believer's deliverance. Look again at what he says. Therefore, my brethren, you were also made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now remember, uh, as I said a little, bit ago, a little bit ago, that chapter 7 takes a lot of what chapter 6 said about the reign of sin and applies it to the reign of the law of Moses. So, so with that in mind, remember that union with Christ, and specifically, Union with his death and his resurrection is the key to our victory over sin. So, so look back at chapter 6 and, and verses 3 and 4, all right? Because these verses are really important for understanding what Paul's trying to say here in chapter 7, verse 4. So Paul says in chapter 6, verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And then he applies it in verse 11. He says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, so I emphasized uh, when we walked through that passage, I think the week before Christmas, that we are united with Christ and that union with Christ changes everything about us. And chapter 7, verse 4 says that union with Christ's death and his resurrection doesn't just change our, our relationship to sin. It also changes our relationship to the law. He says there that we were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. And, and as well... We have been joined to another, 
to him who was raised from dead. So, so hopefully you can see the parallelism between what he said in chapter 6 and what he's saying now in chapter 7. And you know the really valuable cross-reference is Galatians 2, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Now, now how did that take place? He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So so I'll take every opportunity I can to to emphasize the fact that, that when you get saved, you don't just receive a gift. You enter a relationship with the person of Christ. We are united to Him. And when we are united to Christ, in the, in, when we get, are converted, every other blessing of the gospel flows to us through the fact that I am united to Christ. And that relationship changes everything about me. It changes everything. And so we are united to the Savior. And so how has that relationship specifically changed our relationship to the law? Well, well, Paul tells us specifically that because we're united to Christ, we have died to the law. So verse 4 says, we were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Now, the body of Christ here is just simply a reference to his broken body on the cross, his death for us as sinners. So, So let's think about this. Uh, considering the marriage analogy in verses 2 through 3. So, so, so what does Paul say there? He says the only way a covenant can be broken is through death, right? And, and so how can I possibly be free from the law's tyranny and be alive, not dead, all right? Because it doesn't do me much good to die to the law if I'm dead in the process. So how can I die to the law and still be alive? Well, the answer is, is that Christ died to the law. When he died on the cross, he died to the law. And he broke sin's tyranny and the tyranny of the law. And so when I get saved, when I am born again, again, I don't just receive a ticket to heaven, I'm united to Christ. And among the benefits I enjoy is I'm united with his death to the law. And therefore, it's worth emphasizing that the New Testament believer is not bound to the law of Moses. I am not obligated to the commands of the law of Moses. That's what Paul's saying here. I died to the law. And as well, he says in Romans 10 verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And as well, he says in Galatians chapter uh, 3 uh, verses 24 and 25, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But notice, after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So so what God is saying there is that now that Christ has come, I am no longer bound to obey the commands of the Old Testament law. Now that's really important to remember as you read and apply your Old Testament, all right? Because some groups, especially those of, uh, of the covenant persuasion, are going to argue that, that some portions of the law of Moses are binding 
and others are not. And the way that they're going to do that is typically they're going to divide the law into three categories. So they talk, first of all, about the civil law. And the civil law would be those aspects of the law of Moses that have to do with, with government and how Israel's government was to function, you know, that they were supposed to, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, things like that that were government obligations. So they, they divide in the civil law, and then the second would be the ceremonial, which would be um, all those laws surrounding the tabernacle, the feasts, uh, the sacrifices, things of that nature. And then the third would be the moral law, all right, which would be, you know, the, the timeless uh, laws uh, that, that, are, um, that are just moral standards. And so they're going to say that we are obligated to the moral law, but not to the civil and the ceremonial. But, but the problem is, is that the New Testament never makes that distinction. It never says, you're bound to the moral law, not the civil and ceremonial. All the passages we've just read just simply say that you are not bound to the law of Moses. Now, that does not mean that we don't have any law at all, all right? So, so 1 Corinthians chapter 9, this is a really helpful passage. 1 Corinthians 9, and, and Paul says in verses 19 through 21, he says, though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. So, so Paul's talking here about how he did evangelism. And he's talking about how he adapted to various contexts when he's trying to share the gospel, okay? And so he says there, um, he says to those who are under the law, who's he talking about there? He's talking about the Jews. So Paul says, when I'm doing evangelism among the Jews, he says to those who are under the law, I behave, you could say, as under the law. Notice, though not being myself under the law. So when Paul was doing evangelism among Jews, he would voluntarily obey the standards of the law just simply to remove a barrier to sharing the gospel. Even though, he says, I'm not actually obligated to obey the law of Moses. But then he says, and this is key, he says to those who are without law as without law. So that's the Gentiles. The Gentiles don't obey the law of Moses. So, so when Paul was with the Gentiles, he didn't worry about eating bacon or ham. He didn't worry about you know, what kind of clothes he was wearing. He, he adapted to the Gentiles, to those who were without law as without law. But then notice the qualification he gives. Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. So, so Paul, when he says that when he's with, with those without law, he behaves as without law, he doesn't mean that he just will do anything. Because anywhere and everywhere he goes, he is bound to the law of Christ. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, what in the world is the law of Christ? And my summary of that would be that the law of Christ is the ethic of the New Testament as reflected in the teaching and example of Jesus and the apostles. Let me say that again, kind of wordy. The ethic of the New Testament as reflected in the teaching and example of Jesus and the apostles. Now, now, now much of what the New Testament says about our ethic is, is rooted in the Old Testament. In fact, nine of the Ten Commands are repeated in the New Testament as authoritative over our lives. All right, so, so, so the ethic of the New Testament is very much dependent on what the Old Testament has to say. And so we can learn a lot 
about how to please God and, and what honors God and what dishonors God, what God likes and what God doesn't like. You can learn a lot of that stuff by reading through the Law of Moses. The Law of Moses is inspired and profitable. You need it. You need it to know what pleases God and how to serve Him. All right, but you are not obligated to obey it. You're obligated to to the commands and the example of the New Testament. And, And so the New Testament is the ultimate handbook for my conduct. And aren't you thankful for that? I mean, I am so thankful that I'm not bound by all the complicated standards of the law. You know, that I don't have to keep all the feasts and I don't have to offer sacrifices and, and I'm glad that I can eat pigs and I'm glad, you know, that I can eat a catfish and, uh, you know, all those things. That's great. It's a blessing that, that we are not bound to the law of Moses. And beyond that, Paul's primary concern is that the freedom that, that we have in Christ, or, or his primary concern here, is that the law, all that standards, all that stuff that was in the law of Moses, it, it couldn't ultimately produce salvation. It couldn't make someone holy. It, it, the law, we, we've talked about this in chapter 6, the law told people how to be holy. It told them this is what God demands. But the problem was, in the hands of sinners, they had no power to actually live it out. So, so maybe remember from a couple weeks ago, I, I used an illustration of changing a tire. You know, that, that knowing how to change a tire is useless if you don't actually have a jack and a wrench and a spare tire. And, and that's kind of how the law was. It told people what God demands, but it, in the hands of sinners, it didn't give them any ability to actually live it out. And so the law could only reveal their sin, and it left them hopelessly lost and condemned. So folks, it is a big deal that we are not under the law, and that instead we are under the law of Christ. And so if you are saved, you should be so thankful today that you don't have to labor under the weight of of the law of Moses or fear that condemnation. We are dead to the law through Christ. And if you're not saved, you know, a lot of unbelievers, whether it's the law of Moses or some other law, we, we, we tend to set up some sort of law, some sort of standard, some sort of goal, and we think that if we can live up to the standard, we can earn a relationship with God and we can be in heaven someday. But, but Paul is abundantly clear that that is impossible. You, you cannot, you cannot establish a standard of good works that you can meet, that will get you into heaven. And so we all need to humble ourselves before God, admit that we cannot save ourselves, and rest in Christ. So so those who are in Christ have died to the law. But that's not all, all right? Because Paul adds that in addition to dying to the law, we have also been called to bear fruit to God. So so look again at verse 4. And we'll just read the whole thing. He says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Notice the purpose. So that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that you might bear fruit to God. So, we know from the Gospels that Christ's death is not the end of his story, right? The Gospels don't cut off when Jesus 
bows the head and dies. No, there's another chapter, right? Where Jesus rises from the dead. And the resurrection did did far more, Paul says, than simply raise one dead person to life. Look back, just for review, to chapter 6, verses 8 through 11. This is a really important passage regarding the significance of Jesus' resurrection for us. It says in verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So so what's he saying there? Well, well, he's not ultimately talking about rising from physical death and going to heaven. No, he's talking about the fact that when I get saved, when I got saved, I was united with Christ and I was raised immediately into this new life in him. So so think back to the marriage analogy in verses 2 and 3. So through Christ, we died to the covenant of the law. But it's not just that we were liberated from the law of Moses. We are free, verse 4 says, to be joined to another. So I didn't just leave that covenant behind. I became the bride of Christ. I was joined in covenant to the Savior. And folks, that's a marvelous image to consider. That if you are in Christ, you are joined to Him. You belong to Him. You are in Christ instead of the law. And the result of that is, verse 4 says, that we might bear fruit to God. Now, in in American me-first Christianity, that might sound a bit anticlimactic. Like, oh, I want something for me. You know, what, what's, ooh, you know, bear fruit to God. But, but I think we have to recognize that, that any other path you can, you can follow ultimately ends in condemnation, death, and sin. I mean, every road other than bearing fruit to God is a path to condemnation and judgment. So bearing fruit to God is a whole lot better than the alternative. But, but furthermore, God made us to glorify Himself. You were made to glorify God. And and we, we we were made specifically to bear fruit for Him. And so we will never find rest. We will never find satisfaction living for ourselves because you were not made to live for yourself. You were made to live for God. And so we will only find rest by conforming to the image of Christ, manifesting through the Spirit, serving God and loving God's people. And praise the Lord that that we can if we are in Christ. So so we have been delivered. We've been moved from one covenant to the other. And then verses 5 through 6 follow by expanding on the new life that we have as Christians in the Spirit. And they expand on this contrast by, by, by contrasting our hopeless condition under sin with our new condition in Christ. So first of all, verse 5 teaches that the law produces death. And look at verse 5. It says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law 
were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So Paul here challenges every Christian to remember a time when you were in the flesh, speaking of your life before you were saved. And, um, and that's a good reminder because, you know, we all need to know and understand that, that I didn't enter this world as a sincere, beautiful, lovely child of God. No. And, and every parent knows that. But we tend to think that we're the exception. No, we entered this world hostile to God. We entered this world enslaved to our sinful passions and, and on a path towards hell. And so we were all sinners. We, we were all been born in this world in the flesh. But, but then Paul says something that might be a little surprising. He says our sinful passions were aroused by the law. Now, now how does God's law arouse sinful passions? I mean, isn't the law good? Isn't it from God? Now, now Paul's going to directly answer that question when we get to verses 7 through 13, Lord willing, next week. So, so you have to wait till next Sunday for the full answer. But, but it shouldn't be too hard for us to understand the, the general principle that he's, he's teaching here. That because, because let's all be honest. How many of you have ever wanted to break a rule simply because it was in existence? Right? You know, so you're a kid, and mom's got this expensive vase sitting on an end table, and, and you could care less about that vase. But the moment mom says, don't touch the vase, what do you want to do? You, want to, you don't just want to touch the vase, you want to hit your brother over the head with the vase. That's, that's how we all are. I mean, our hearts are all sinful and wicked. And, and so the very fact that, that God gives us a law for, for sinners like us, it, it arouses in us a desire to rebel. And, and Israel's history is a perfect illustration of how this all takes place. You know, the law did not make Israel a holy nation. I mean, Israel's history is not a history of godliness and holiness and purity. It's a history of failure. Now, now yes, there's, there's plenty of godly Israelites along the way who are born again. But, but, the, but the general history of the nation is a history of unregenerate, godless people going further and further away from God. I mean, just think of the fact that, that right after God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, what did Israel do? They built a golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai. And then they go into the land, and, and, and Moses warns them before they even enter the land that they are a wicked people, and they are going to rebel against God. And sure enough, that's what they did over and over and over. And in fact... You know, by the, end, by the time the prophets are coming around, you know, God is not just condemning Israel for being bad. He's condemning them for being worse than the nations surrounding them. And so God's favor on Israel was not due to the godliness of the people. It was due to his covenant faithfulness. And Israel's character was horrible. But, but while we might sit here and look down our noses at them and think, what a bunch of retards. You know, you know, but, but, but while we might think that, we have to understand that we are no better. After all, I mean, verse 5 is addressed to all of us, not just the Israel of the Old Testament. I mean, we all rebel against God's law. We don't want to obey. 
And we all kick against the pull of our conscience and the commands of God. And the consequences of our sin are devastating. Because apart from Christ, what does Paul say? He says that the sinful passions were aroused by the law to work in us not fruit to God, but instead that we might bear, instead that we might bear fruit for death. So, so I want to be clear today that there is no such thing as a person outside of Christ who is moving towards heaven. There's just not. Because in myself, my heart is always going to move away from God, not towards God. And I have no hope of, of doing enough good things, doing enough works, that I can earn a place in heaven. So if you think that you can be good enough to earn the acceptance of God, you are terribly mistaken. And the Bible would go so far as to say that every day that you are trying to earn the favor of God is another day, really, of living in pride and rebellion against who God is and who you are. Now, the only destiny of any man apart from Christ is eternal death in hell. We all desperately need salvation and new life. And praise the Lord that that's exactly what Jesus provided. Because the, the, there's a stark contrast between verses 5 and 6 because verse 6 goes on to say uh, that, that the Spirit produces godliness. The Spirit produces godliness. So verse 6 says, But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So, so the verse begins by reminding us that, that when you got saved, again, you didn't just receive a home in heaven. You were, he says, released from the law. And you, were, you died to that to which you were bound. You were united to Christ. And specifically, you were united to his death. His death to sin, as chapter 6 says, and his death to the law, as chapter 7 says. And, and, and it's a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful gift. Because of sin, again, the law inspires evil. It enslaves us. And it leads us down a path of condemnation. And again, we'll talk about that a whole lot more in verses 7 through 13 next week. But, but in Christ, we are freed from all of that. In Him, we die to the law's oppression and condemnation. And not just that, Paul adds that Christ replaced the letter of the law, you know, speaking there of the written out code that God gave Moses, He replaced the letter of the law with the newness of the Spirit. Now, when we get to chapter 8, we are going to talk a whole lot more about what it is that the Holy Spirit does in us, this, this newness of the Spirit, and His work to, to help us become godly. But for now, I think we can easily see that this is a massive change. So, so the letter of the law, you know, again, the letter of law, God told Israel, this is what you must do. But he didn't give them any power to actually do it through the law. But now in the, in the New Testament, we have the newness of the spirit. And, and so, and so the spirit does not just tell us how to please God. He gives us power to change. So, so the, so the Old Testament folks, because all God gave was the letter of the law, that the Old Testament is a long story that just spirals worse and worse towards the judgment of God. The Old Testament 
is not a story of victory. It's a tragedy. But God promised Israel. You know, and, and so towards the end of the Old Testament period, as, as, as Israel is moving towards judgment, as the Babylonians are creeping closer and closer, and as God's people, those who truly were born again, began to despair, God began giving some promises that this was not the end of the story. And one of those key passages is in Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel writes this from Babylon, or God gives him this, this promise from Babylon. He says to Israel and to us that the day is coming when I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Now, now a key part of this is who is acting in this passage? Who is the one who is doing the work? Is it Israel or God? It's God. God is going to do these things. He says, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. That's key for our text. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now, now folks, considering all that we've seen about our sin and the law's failure, that is an incredible promise. Because God tells Israel, the day is coming where I'm not just going to tell you what to do, I am going to empower you by my spirit to do it. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to transform you from the inside out. And my spirit will equip you to live a life of genuine godliness. And so the Spirit is coming, he says, to, to equip us to obey God in a way that we never could on our own. And so because the Spirit, if you are in Christ, you can truly love God. And you can live a life that pleases Him. And you can progressively be conformed to the image of Christ. And, and folks, that is a wonderful blessing. You know, I mean, this is the heart of that transition from the age of the law to the age of grace. Grace is fundamentally power to live a transformed life. And it comes to us in Christ through the person of the Spirit. And it's a wonderful gift because there's no greater blessing than an image bearer of God can enjoy than to be near to God, to be like Him, and to glorify Him. And so God has given us an incredible gift. So Christian, God has given you a wonderful blessing. Christ has released you from the law. You are not bound by the law that God gave on Mount Sinai. No, instead, He has written the law on your heart and He has revealed to us a new ethic in the New Testament. And, and, and so we can now serve Him in the newness of the Spirit. So give thanks for that. Give thanks for the work that God has done, that you live in the age of grace. And then pursue godliness. You can change, you can grow if the Holy Spirit lives inside you. So, so fight sin. Fight sin with confidence that you can overcome. You know, pursue godliness. Love the Lord. Be satisfied in Him. And become like Him. Because all of those things are at your fingertips in the strength of the Spirit of God. And if you are not saved, 
please understand that any pursuit of Christ or any pursuit without Christ is a hopeless endeavor. You cannot get there on your own. You need to be born again. You need the Holy Spirit to come inside you and to change you from the inside out. This is not a change that you produce for yourself. This is a divine change that comes to us by faith in Christ. And so if you have never been saved, come to Christ. Be forgiven of your sins. Receive Him. And let Him change you in a way that you will never change yourself. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank You for Your Word. And thank You for the grace that has come to us in Christ. And Father, I pray for any who are here that do not yet know this grace. They've never received Christ as their Savior, I pray that today they'd be born again and come to Him and and that, Lord, You would change their heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And God, I pray for those of us who know You as Savior, that, Lord, this week we would live in the strength and in the grace that You provide. I pray that Your Holy Spirit would work among us to mold us and conform us to the image of the Savior. And God, give us grace. Give us, excuse me, encouragement to do battle with sin to fight for godliness, and to become like our Savior. And God, may we be satisfied in Him. May we rejoice in Him. And may we share Him with those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.